0: Have you ever had a uh, just a moment where your picture of the ideal suddenly collides with your experience of the real, and the two do not line up, and disappointment is what comes out of it? You have this picture of the ideal, and it collides with your experience of the real, and the two just don't mesh. In fact, they just kind of completely compete with one another. At a moment like this. This would have been 2007-ish. My wife and I were married, no kids. We were in Los Angeles for a conference, and um, we were there with another couple that was going to the conference with us, and we had a day to kind of just be tourists, and so we decided that we'd be tourists in L.A. and do all the things in L.A. that people do. We'd go to Hollywood and do all all that stuff, and so we went to the Chinese Theater, and while we're standing outside the Chinese Theater, this person walks up to me. And he says, hey, how would you like to go see the filming of American Gladiators for free? Now, I don't know how old you are. You may not know what American Gladiators is. So let me just tell you, before there was American Ninja Warrior, there was American Gladiators, American Gladiators, you didn't just work your way through like a measly obstacle course. No, you had to go through an obstacle course with muscle-bound gladiators by the name of ice and laser with throwing things and shooting things at you and trying to knock you off course. And as a kid, I used to watch this show and just long to go on and be take my chance against the gladiators. You know, they ended the show in like 1996. And then they rebooted it in like 2006 with none other than Hulk Hogan as the host. And here I am in front of the Chinese theater and I have the opportunity to get free tickets to go watch American Gladiator being filmed. It's like, wow, dream come true coming out of my childhood. So me and my friend, We're like super pumped about it. Our wives, not so much. They're not super excited. They're like, wait a minute. You wanna use our day in LA to go watch this dumb show? We're like, it's not a dumb show. It's an incredible show. And yes, we are going to go watch it. So we jump into our car. We get our GPS. We punch in the address that the guy gave us and we make our way down there. And when we arrive at the destination that our GPS tells us, we pull up and immediately something just doesn't feel quite right. We're at this like large uh, kind of arena, like basketball arena type thing, but there's like no cars in the parking lot. And it feels kind of like a shady neighborhood. Like my wife's like clutching her purse a little tighter as she's walking in there. And we get to the double doors and right before we get to the doors, both of our wives are like, are you sure we're in the right place? And then I look and there behind the arena, I see that huge human hamster ball that the gladiators used to get in. You guys know what I'm talking about? No? Okay, just me? Anyway, so I'm like, yes, this is it. This is where the gladiators are. So we go through the double doors And we get in where normally there would be people lined up for concessions and that kind of thing. It's just empty. We can hear some noise coming from inside the arena, but out in the, like, walkway, it's totally empty except for one person with, like, this microphone on, and they say, hey, are you here for American Gladiators? Like, yes, we are. And they said, okay, follow me. I'll take you where you're going. So they lead us down these empty corridors and we come through the doors and there's the arena. We walk in, there it is, laid out in front of me. I can see all the gladiator obstacles and there's this huge arena that's about a quarter full. That's three quarters empty, you know? So there's like people in the first like 20 rows and that's it. And so we walk in and we sit down and all the people that are in there, there's nothing going on on the gladiator arena at the moment and every person that's sitting in there is either on their cell phone or they're like eating chips or talking to the people next to them. Nobody's looking at the arena. Arena, until this guy comes out with like a bullhorn, and he starts shouting instructions into the bullhorn. I kid you not. He says, hey, everybody, put your cell phones away. Everybody, put your purses on the floor. Put on your phone fingers and start cheering in three, two, and the crowd just goes, yeah! They all start cheering for American Gladiators because the cameras are on, and I immediately realize, oh, wait a minute. I thought this was like a live sporting event, and now I'm realizing that the whole thing is staged. Hulk Hogan would get up and he'd mess up his lines like over and over again. And every time he'd mess up his lines, the people would go from cheering to just sitting there looking at each other, totally bored. And then they'd point at us and everybody start cheering again. And we're like, what in the world? And then when the whole thing is over, The people sitting around us get up and they just rush out of there to go get in line. And we say, what's going on? And this person stops us and says, oh, they're all going to get paid. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought I got a free ticket. All these other people are paid to be here. And I came with a free ticket thinking, I've got something great. And it turns out I'm the only sucker in the room that wasn't making money to be there to film this fake experience called American Gladiators. My childhood ideal of this live sporting event with incredible athletes suddenly just collided with my experience of a very real and very disappointing phony setup. The whole thing was fake. You know, we have those moments, right, where this ideal, the picture we have, collides with our experience of the real, and it feels like a total letdown. You know, and one of the things that I think is fascinating about the Advent season about the Christmas season is that oftentimes, Christmas kind of has this tendency to be like that where there's this very real ideal that is kind of held out, this this clear picture of what the ideal Christmas looks like, only to sometimes have it collide with our experience of the real. I mean, it doesn't take much to find a picture of the ideal Christmas, right? You turn on the TV right now, you listen to the radio, you get online to do some shopping, you're gonna see it everywhere. The ideal Christmas, I mean, that means like, some of you are going to walk out Christmas morning, there's gonna be a brand new Lexus with a red bow wrapped around the hood waiting for you. Or the Hallmark Christmas where you know, it's this perfect Yule log burning with a whole family in their brand new flannel pajamas, drinking eggnog, eating roasted turkey, and nobody's fighting, everyone's happy with a smile on their face, right? The picture of the ideal Christmas. And yet so often what we experience is a very real thing that feels very different than that. Even if you have a great Christmas, often it doesn't live up to this expectation of the ideal Christmas. And oftentimes we don't even have a good Christmas you have arguments with your family, (laughs) you don't get the present that you were longing for, so, you know, the cousin you were hoping would be there doesn't show up, or when he does, he shows up and you fight the whole time, you know, there's just all these things that kind of let us down, and it kind of left me wondering, why in the world, if, if Christmas ultimately is this experience of the ideal colliding with the real, then why do we start the Advent season talking about hope? It almost feels like we're just setting ourselves up for disappointment, And I think we find our answer for this in Matthew chapter one. We're gonna be looking at the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, we're not gonna read the whole thing because our minds will just be swimming with names that don't mean much to us. And it's just kind of confusing. But I think in this genealogy of Jesus, in the family tree of Jesus, we see a picture of why Advent begins with hope, even in the face of having our pictured ideal shattered by our experience of the real. So let's look in Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one, I'm just gonna start by reading verse one, okay? This is verse one of Matthew one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew starts right away by wanting to point us to the roots of Jesus's family tree. He says, this is the, the genealogy. This is the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah. And he says, he's the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David. And the reason that Matthew sets it up this way is he's trying to draw our attention, his reader's attention to this fact that Jesus's family tree is rooted in the promises of God. That his family tree is rooted in God's promises. Here's what I mean. This guy, Abraham, if you wanna read his story, you can go to Genesis, uh, starting in chapter 12. But Abraham, who when we first meet him in Genesis 12, he's just known by Abram. And in a time where there was no structured or systematic way of of having a religion or pursuing uh, God Almighty as we know him today, uh, Abram is just this guy that God comes to him. God comes to Abram, a man who's in his uh, late 80s, early 90s, no children, and God comes to him and he makes this promise. He says, hey, Abram, if you'll trust me, I want to show you, I am going to give you descendants. In fact, your descendants are going to be so numerous, you're not going to be able to count them just like the stars that stretch across the heavens at night. So he gives them this promise of a large family of descendants. And he gives them this other promise as well. He says, hey, Abram, that family that I'm going to give you, through that family, the entire world is going to be blessed, that I'm going to let my blessing flow through your family to the rest of the world. Wow, what a promise. So that's the promise that Matthew's pointing to with Abraham, that this tree of Jesus's family is rooted in that promise. But then there's this other promise as well. He says he's also a descendant of David. You see, David was a descendant of Abraham. He he was 14 generations after Abraham, so his family had begun to grow. And David was a man that was kind of appointed to be the king of the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham. And in 2 Samuel 7, you find G- uh, uh, David about to take his throne, and there's this promise that God gives him. He says, hey, David, here's the promise I want to give you about your throne. Your, your kingdom will know no end. Your kingdom will last forever. Your throne will endure forever. It's like, wow, he says, David, your kingdom is going to be an eternal kingdom. What a promise. And so what Matthew is telling his readers and telling us is, hey, this family tree I'm about to give you, it is rooted in the promises of God, the promises to Abraham, the promises to David. Now, but here's what happens when you get beyond the first verse. You see immediately that this family tree is rooted in promise, but it is riddled with disappointment. You start reading, starting in verse two, he starts with Abraham and starts working through all of the descendants and you're going, hey, this thing's rooted in promise, but immediately you start seeing the disappointment that abounds. In verse, in verse three, for example, you see this guy named Judah and two of his sons that he has. And uh, you know, what, what Matthew doesn't tell us is that Judah has these two sons by his daughter-in-law. So it's like this scandalous thing right away, this tree rooted in promise. Immediately there's this disappointment of this scandalous relationship of a father and his daughter-in-law. And you keep reading and you get to verse five and you find this woman named Rahab. And when you first meet Rahab, she's a prostitute. And what she moves on to do, she actually is a woman who becomes a traitor to her country in order to save her own family. And that is how the family line of Abraham continues. And also in verse five, you see this man named Boaz who marries a woman named Ruth. Ruth was not an Israelite, but she came from a nation that worshiped idols, which was despicable to the Israelites. So now you've got, you've got a prostitute. You've got a man sleeping with his daughter-in-law. You've, you've now got uh, someone marrying someone who's an idolater. And then you get to verse six, and you make it to the recipient of the second promise. You make it to David, and you start thinking, okay, now there's some hope. There's another promise here. But David himself, David gets caught up in a royal scandal that involved adultery, conspiracy to murder, murder, and then the covering up of that murder. It's just crazy. You see this tree rooted in promise and yet riddled with disappointment. And in verses seven through 11, all of those names that you'll read that come after David, they're all kings that ruled in David's kingdom. Some of them were good kings. Some of them stayed true to who God called them to be. But many of them totally rebelled against the ways of God and they became idolaters even down to doing things such as sacrificing their own children in fire to an idol. And by the time you get to verse 11, it just feels like all disappointment is just raining down on this king, this kingdom. See in verse 11 it says Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. You see this kingdom that was supposed to last forever has been overthrown and the people have been carried into exile into another nation. The kingdom that makes up Jesus' family tree has been chopped down, and what looked like a promising tree is now simply a stump of a promise, a stump of disappointment. And what we see here is this family tree that is rooted in the ideal of promise has collided with the experience of the real, real failures, failures. Real betrayals, real heartbreak, real loss, real pain, real rejection, and it appears to have ended in the disappointment of failure in verse 11. As I read that and I thought about this week, I wonder like, how many of us have been in that moment before? A moment where we have an ideal for something that comes colliding in with our experience of the real. It might be the ideal of that perfect marriage, the day that you say, I do, that comes crashing down after years of Lukewarm intimacy or maybe the discovery of unfaithfulness, the ideal of a new job. Maybe finally I'll feel like I have purpose and I have meaning only to get the job and have your experience come crashing down under the weight of a cruel boss, unrelenting hours or the day in and day out drudgery that comes with almost every job. Maybe it's the the ideal of college life, like I'm done with high school, I'm gonna go be independent, it's gonna be great, and then it collides with your experience of the real, of the weight of schoolwork and and the drama that sometimes comes in your social life in college. You can go on and on and on, all these places where we have this ideal that seems to collide with the real and results in disappointment. You see, when the ideal collides with the real, where we put our hope suddenly becomes of the utmost of importance. You see, where our hope is will determine how devastating the disappointment really is in our lives. And if we wanna know where we put our hope, then we just need to ask ourselves, who is it or what is it that I am trusting to bring about the outcome in my life that I desire? Who is it or what is it that I'm trusting in to bring about the outcome in my life that I desire? Because that is the thing that you are hoping in. And the thing that you are hoping in will impact how much devastation you feel when you are faced with the real that doesn't line up with your ideal. You see, in Jesus' family tree, when we look at this and we look at the very real people that were in his family tree, if their hope was in people's ability to make good choices and to be reliable, well, then they're only left for the biggest of disappointments as person after person seems to fail if their hope is in the world's understanding of a successful kingdom, well, then they're only left, there's nothing left to feel but disappointment and despair because when you get to verse 11, that kingdom has been decimated and the people have been exiled. You see, but the hope of Jesus' family tree, it is not found in the people. It's not found in that physical kingdom. It is found where it is rooted. The promise of God is the hope of Jesus' family tree. You see, we get a picture of this hope, a beautiful picture from this random uh, prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah lived about 750 years before Jesus. He was there to witness as this kingdom that was supposed to endure forever was beginning to crumble. He was there to witness as the people that were supposed to be the people of promise went into exile. And he gives us this beautiful picture of the hope that comes in God's promise. In Isaiah chapter 11, if you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah 11, It's page 481, if you're using one of our Bibles, page 481. And I'm going to read just portions of verses 1 through 10 of Isaiah 11. Listen to what Isaiah says about the family tree of Jesus. He says, a shoot or a sprout will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse, in case you didn't know, Jesse was the father of David. So David is the recipient of that promise. So what Isaiah's is returning to is uh, referring to is David's family line. He says, "A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse; from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him: the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord." He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, this state of right being in who he is, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions on behalf of the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked." righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. You see, Isaiah is pointing to this shoot that is gonna come out of the stump of Jesse that is going to rule the earth with righteousness. And then he keeps going in verses six through nine, he uses poetic imagery to show this picture of the utmost and perfect peace. He's saying it's gonna be like the lion and the lamb laying down together. It's gonna be like a small child leading a dangerous animal, a creature, a predator. He said, there's gonna be this peace. And in verse nine, he says, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And listen to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Now, I love this imagery that Isaiah uses. This idea of a tree stump that's been sawn off and something new coming from it. And this may not resonate if you've never seen the way that a tree functions when it's cut down. You know, Many of us think that if, we, if you saw down a tree completely, then surely that means that it will die. You see, I learned personally, this is not necessarily the case. My wife had me cut down a tree a couple of years ago in our backyard. It was unsightly and she didn't really want it around anymore. So I went back there and I chopped it down. I thought that was it. I chopped it down to a stump about this big. But one of the things that I learned is that the level of devastation that a tree experiences by being cut down all depends upon the health of the root system. That with healthy roots, a sawed off tree will begin to sprout new growth. And I watched this happen, this little stump that I cut down The next spring, I'm out there mowing my yard, and I see this little sprout coming out of that stump, and I'm like, there's no way, like, that thing's going to die. You know, I, I chopped it down. And then I just kept watching as that sprout kept growing and kept growing and kept growing, and what I began to realize is that with a healthy root system, that stump can bear a new sprout that can grow into a tree. Into a tree, they begin to bear fruit. See, the devastation that a tree experiences based on being cut down is found in the health of its root system. You see, with Advent, Advent begins with hope because we understand that the promises of Jesus's family tree are not found in the people within that tree, but they are found in the promises of God. You know, if you were to read about Jesus's family tree up to verse 11, it would appear that that all is lost, that there's no hope. But then you begin to read verses 12 through 16. And there's these other names, these random obscure names that we've never even heard of, this tiny little shoot or a sprout that's starting to come out of that sawed-off tree stump. And when you get to verse 16 of Matthew 1, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Jesus The Messiah. Messiah is this word in the Hebrew language that simply meant anointed. And in the Greek language, it's the word Christos. It's where we get the name Christ for Jesus. It means anointed one. It carries with it this language of kingship. Because when they would would anoint or put a new king on the throne, they would anoint his head with oil. And what Matthew is saying, and what we know about Jesus is, this is a new king in the line of David himself. Only this king, he is not anointed with oil, but just like Isaiah prophesied, he's anointed with the Spirit of God. And with the Spirit of God, he will exercise justice on the earth. That this new king will carry on the eternal throne of David, anointed with the very Spirit of God himself. And his name, Jesus itself, means that the Lord saves. The Lord saves. As king, Jesus, just like Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 11, As king, he would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Jesus would show up and he would teach in such a way that it would just turn things upside down. That Jesus' teachings on this planet ultimately forever altered the course of human history. Do you know how different the world is today because of the teachings of Jesus Christ? That Jesus, this king, He would accomplish and bring about peace, not with military might, not with political savvy, not with humanitarian effort, but by surrendering himself to endure on his own shoulders the weight of humanity's failure, humanity's brokenness, and humanity's sin. And he would do this by hanging and bleeding on a cross. That this king, he would endure the experience of the ultimate disappointment, that of death, all so that he could deliver over the hope of life. You see, just when it seemed that all was lost for this king, Jesus, he would conquer death. That after being in the tomb for three days, he would raise to life and be elevated to a throne that would never end. So fulfilling the promise given to King David. So Jesus becomes the ultimate fulfillment of this family tree that's rooted in a promise given by God. You see, hope for David's kingdom was not found in David's strength or any of his children's strength. Hope for David's kingdom was found in the promise of God in which it was rooted. You see, so Jesus fulfills the promise given to David, but Jesus also fulfills the promise given to Abraham. You see, at the cross, Jesus spread out his arms wide and said, no longer are the promises of God, no longer is the love of God, no longer is relationship with God limited to the descendants of Abraham, No longer is it limited only to the nation of Israel. Jesus said, no, by spreading my arms and dying on this cross, I have come to open the door so that all of humanity can be grafted into my family tree. This is the language that that Paul uses in Romans 11. He says, for those of us who were not born into the nation of Israel, those who are not by birth Jewish, those who are not born into Israel, we have been grafted into the tree of the promise of God because of the death and resurrection and the grace of Jesus Christ. see through Jesus, all of us get to be rooted in the promises of God. You see, Advent is important because we remember the coming of Jesus at his birth, the very first Advent of God, when God came in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. The birth of Jesus shows us that the promises of God can be trusted, that God promised centuries before Jesus he was going to do it, and then he did it. He came as a helpless babe, born into a small town in the Middle East called Bethlehem. The promises spoken centuries before God is saying, listen, these promises are going to come true regardless of what your experiences of the real feel like. The ideal of promise can be trusted regardless of what you're feeling. That every time we experience the real and it feels like the ideal is shattered, that the promises of God are at work under the surface to bring about the promises that God has made. You see, the birth of Jesus shows us that as our trust is rooted in the promises of God, then there is hope. It's in remembering the coming of Jesus that we find hope as well in the return of Jesus. You see, the promises that God made didn't stop with Abraham and with David. No, Jesus stepped into that. He fulfilled the promises of Abraham and David, and then he gave us some brand new promises. Namely, this, the promises of Jesus. He says, Listen, here's what's going to happen when I take my seat on the eternal throne. He says, there's a time coming, Revelation 21, where I will bring a new heaven and a new earth and all things will be made new. All of your experience of the real with its sadness and its sorrow and its brokenness and its death, all of it will be made undone. As I make all things new, I will wipe every tear. I will take away every sorrow. I will reverse all death. I'm going to make all things new. This is the promise of Jesus. And as we look at the birth of Jesus, we say, man, we follow a God that can be trusted, he keeps his end of the deal. And so at Advent, we remember the birth of Jesus. And man, we long for and we expect and we have hope in the return of our king because that is his promise. And here's our love about the promise of Jesus is that as we wait, as we long for, it's not just hopeless pie-in-the-sky theology. No, you see, the promise of Jesus is not just that a time will come, but he says, no, the time has come because as you wait, I will put my Holy Spirit living within you that even as the real experiences that are disappointing come upon you, you do not have to be overcome because I will live within you and my promises can bear fruit in your life right now, right here because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, the hope and the promises of Jesus, it brings fruit right now. When your picture of the ideal It collides with your experience of the real. We can experience something beyond disappointment and beyond despair. That in the face of disappointments, we can have joy. Do you know that? That in the face of hate in our world, we can be marked by love. That in the face of a world that always seems to be on the brink of war, that is scarred by anxiety, we can be a people that are marked by peace, showing the world how to live by the peace of Jesus. That even when faced with death, faced with the death of a loved one, whether it's in an untimely manner or whether it's because of ripe old age, we can have hope. Because Jesus promises life beyond this life. Jesus has conquered death and Jesus keeps his promises. See, Advent is this time where we remember because as we remember, we can have hope as we long. We look to the manger, the birth of Jesus and let it fill our hearts with hope that Jesus is true and that Jesus will return and make all things new. So how do we do this? You know, we want to invite all of us as a church family just to enter into the Advent season to try something maybe different for some of you this year. You know, the, the Christmas season offers all kinds of distractions. There's all kinds of hustle and bustle and things that you've got to do to get ready for the holidays. And what we want to invite our church family to do is to try three simple things, three simple things as we move into this season together. I'll say them out for you, and then I'll kind of unpack them a little bit, but the three simple words are just to sit, to see, and to share. To sit, to see, and to share. Now, we're going to be putting stuff on our website to kind of resource you and help you with this. You can go to ethoschurch.org Christmas, and we're going to give you some ideas and some suggestions for how you can enter into this season, and here's what we mean by sit, see, and share. So, we start with sitting, Will we, as followers of Jesus, will we take the time this Advent season to take five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day to sit and allow ourselves to be still, to silence our cell phones, to silence the voice of of media always shouting at us and the voice of others, will we sit and be still with Jesus? There are a lot of ways to do this. You can sit with Jesus by reading Scripture, you can sit with Jesus through prayer, by journaling your prayers, by practicing something called breath prayers, which we tell you about on the website. There's lots of ways to practice sitting with Jesus. But as we enter into the Advent season, if we wanna be a people marked by hope, it begins with us taking time every day just to sit with Jesus. The next thing that we wanna do is we just wanna see. As we sit with Jesus, will we ask him to help us see where he is actively at work and bringing about hope in this world? You know, I think so many times the hope of Jesus is right there around us, but we're so distracted by the busyness of this life that we get overwhelmed by the disappointments of this life. And I think often Jesus is trying to draw our eyes to see the hope that's there right in front of us if we would take the time to see it. So as we sit with Jesus, what we see, it may be a way that he's inviting you and to encourage someone else. It may be a way that he's inviting you to get to be a, a source of hope for someone around you, or it may be the way that he is actively working to bring hope into your life. But as we sit, let's ask Jesus to help us to see. And then finally, will we share? Sharing is this moment where, where whatever it is that you're seeing as you sit with Jesus, you just share it with those around you. You share it with your roommates that you live with. You, you share it with your family, with your, with your spouses, with your kids, with your coworkers, You know, this is playing itself out. My wife and I have been practicing this, really just we tried it last year for the first time in Advent. We're trying it again this year. Where every night we sit with our kids. It's kind of a gong show. You know, they're seven and five and and a year and a half year old. You know, so it's like they're just kind of crazy and they don't focus much, but we sit down every night and we have a candle for each day leading up to Christmas that we light. You know, by the end of this thing, I'm gonna have 25 candles burning in my living room. I don't know what's gonna happen, taking out some extra fire insurance. from lighting all these candles, one candle each day, And then we read a simple reading, help us capture the Advent Spirit. And here's what's really cool, is that in the process of doing this, we've been trying to think, who who are we seeing and who do we need to share with? And we've got a list of people that we're praying for, and, and two of those are some of our neighbors. It was just so cool. Last night, as we're getting ready to start our Advent moment of sitting with Jesus, there's a knock at our door, and it's our neighbors. And they were coming by to encourage my son, who had surgery on Friday, and she's a believer, he's not. They came in, and they sat with us and they got to join with us in this Advent reading in this moment. Well, it never would have happened if Amy hadn't pushed me for us to start making some time in our life to sit and to see what Jesus is doing. And so I just wanna invite you, as a church family, let's be a people this Advent who are marked by hope, and let's enter into that by taking the time to sit, taking the time to see where Jesus is at work, and taking the time to share what we see him doing. We're gonna start that this morning, yeah, it's kind of what we do every week, right? I'm gonna dismiss you in a minute and you're gonna to go to the communion table where you're gonna get the cup and the bread. And in that moment, I just wanna encourage you as you sit with Jesus, let him speak into your life. Listen for the places where you need hope and have eyes to see what it is he's wanting to do in your life. And then let's get with one another and let's just share, share with each other over the cup and the bread, where do you need the hope of Jesus. Share with one another, where are the places that you need to be encouraged? Share with one another, where are the places that the Lord is letting you be an encouragement to someone else and then take the bread and the cup together. And as we do this, of course, you know, if, if you need prayer, if you, you need someone to talk to, if you're here by yourself, we always have men and women that stand over here at the Respond Banner and we would love to pray with you, to encourage you, just to hear you, whatever, whatever it is that you need. We are a family and we do this with one another and we do it together. So I wanna invite you, just stand with me Once again, I mean, twice in one Sunday, I'm gonna ask you to hold hands with the people next to you. Everyone's excited about that. You know, we we enter into this Advent journey as family. We are a family ethos church, a family of God, brothers and sisters, and we enter into this season with one another as we collectively sit with Jesus, have eyes to see what he's doing, and to share that with others. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that out of disappointment you just let hope spring up. Thank you for giving us promises that are rooted in who you are, not in who we are. Thank you for promises that are rooted in your faithfulness, not in our ability. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to be on this side of your birth, where we have this momentous occasion that we look back on, to anchor us in hope, to anchor us that you. Our Father is faithful, that our Father is bringing to fulfillment all the things He's promised. Jesus, as we come into Advent season, as we approach Christmas to remember your birth, would you fill us with hope and remind us of your promises that you are actively working. You're actively working to make things new, to repair this, the brokenness in this world, to bring healing where there is hurting, Lord, to bring life where there is death, Fill our hearts with your Spirit and Holy Spirit. Would you work in us to produce hope? May this Advent season be one of hope for all of us as a family, Lord, and for your world. We love you, Lord. Come, Jesus, come. It's in your name.